welcome to the CG Pro podcast. This is episode 35 with Peter Higuchi with us and I'm going to introduce him in a second. If you enjoy this evening, then please do uh, follow us at becomecgpro.com or in our Facebook group. Uh, so it gives me great pleasure this evening to welcome Peter, Peter Higuchi. He is uh, a filmmaker, uh, storyteller, and also uh, passionate about the virtual production revolution that's going on right now. And has been done some really amazing pioneering work in the virtual production space. So I'm re really excited to speak with Peter this evening. Um, he's got a, a story filmmaking career and um, worked at some, some incredible places in the past and has made a lot of his own features, which is really exciting. So yeah, Peter, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ed. I really appreciate you inviting me. Of course. Yeah. No, it's, it's my pleasure. And we've got to, to hang out at some cool events and, and uh, hang out together a little bit already. And um, yeah, we're both both excited about what's going on at the moment today. You know, this kind of re revolutionary time that we're in in filmmaking yeah. using real-time tools. Um, I want to take a second, though, before we get stuck into the future and all of that good stuff um, and just take a couple steps back to the the beginning of your journey and and ask you about um how you got started i know you've been a film you've been a filmmaker and interested in filmmaking since you were a kid which is it's kind of rare to for somebody to get what they're meant to be doing so so young but but you did and i'm, I'm curious as to kind of what what steered you what early inspirations you had and and kind of how you got going uh, well, um, yeah, I started uh, as a, I started filmmaking as a kid. Yeah, my, my mom uh, was an animator. Um, she was, um, I was born in LA, I was born in Hollywood. And um, uh, my mom worked uh, as an animator. She was an in-betweener and an ink and painter at uh, Hanna-Barbera Studios in LA. And she worked on Scooby-Doo and the Flintstones and... Um, she did commercials. She did the Kool-Aid Man commercials where he'd like bust through the wall and say, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she actually she hand drew, uh, rotoscoped the face saying, oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, she did a lot of stuff for that for that studio. And I loved cartoons when I was a kid. Um, and did you appreciate was, then like how cool that was at the time? Do you think your mom was really cool when you were a kid? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was so cool to be watching cartoons and then to know that my mom, like I watched Scooby-Doo and I thought it was cool. And then she would, <laughs> she would like draw uh, Scooby-Doo or Shaggy or any of the characters that I wanted. And, um, and she would draw like characters on my hand so I could care. I could take them with me, you know? Wow. And um, so it was like, I had a lot of questions. I really wanted to, I wanted to understand how they were made. And um, I was, my mom and I were very similar in that we were passionate about art. And so she had a studio, she was also a fine artist. So she had a studio in the house that was her art studio. And then she, I wanted my own art studio. So she gave me um, like an easel and all the art, um, you know, we go to the art store together and 
she'd buy her supplies and then she'd get me me supplies as well. She never really pushed it on me. I just really wanted to do it. I wanted to, she was like, I wanted to make cartoons. So she was like, well, first you have to learn how to draw. So we would um, often go to the park or something with, with like little pads. And then we'd sketch like a tree or something like that. And then, so that was like the thing I did with my mom the most, like I would draw with her or, you know, so I would draw something and then she kind of correct it. <laughs> so like she would teach me how to see things like perspective, or if the sun was coming from this direction, you know, it would create a shadow and then the shadow would all be the same for all the different, you know, just different rules about what, about how physical light and shadow and perspective and then physically how to like render that with a pencil or with a pen or with, with, with paint brushes. So like, I remember, um, we'd go to a movie and I'd be like, like I go to see star Wars or something like that, or I would, I would want to, or Superman or something. I'd want to draw what I saw. So I would go in my room and I would be drawing like Darth Vader. And then I would come into her studio and I'd show it to her and she'd critique it. And so she would like draw what I was trying to draw. <laughs> it was really infuriating. Like I draw Darth Vader and it was horrible. Then she would draw it right next to, right next to my drawing, but perfect. <laughs> and then she would show me what I was doing wrong. Then I would go back in my room, do it again, come back. And I would just go back and forth until, until I, until it was good, until I like mastered that drawing. And so I think that that was really like the beginning of it all um, for me. And, um, and then my mom and dad got a divorce and we moved to Marin County to be with family when I was five. So that was 1977. Your, mom, your mom's side. It was just my mom. Yeah. So, uh, oh, my mom's side. Yeah, it was her. So my, my mom's mom, my grandmother and my uncle and aunt, they lived in Marin County. Right. So we moved there. So we lived in this little town called Fairfax. And then my grandmother lived in San Anselmo. She lived like two miles away from George Lucas. So, and everyone around us were like employees of Lucasfilm or ILM. And so that was five. And um, my Sunday school teacher um, was this guy named Chris Evans. And he was the map painting supervisor industrial like magic and he was working on you know star wars <laughs> uh, uh not star he was working on Return of the jedi but he worked on let's see he was like um uh back to the future um willow dark crystal uh gremlins uh, batteries not included um indiana jones and the temple of doom um all these films that were in the eighties that I was like sort of obsessed with inner space, um, he was working on. And then, um, my oh, neighbor, Sunday school teacher. I know. Right? So I, he's, I showed him my artwork and I had, at that time I was making cartoons. So I had made these flip books. So I kind of graduated from making, um, drawings to flip books, uh, to little cartoons. So I had this box of like, little yellow sticky pads and I would, and my mom taught me how to, how to make things move. So I was making little movies. They even had like editing. So it would be like, 
it would be a shot to another shot and different perspective camera movements and things like that. They were kind of sophisticated. When I look at them now, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty sophisticated for a little kid. Um, but that, that was kind of how the door opened up. So then Chris was kind of like, you can, you know, why don't you come to ILM and we can, I can show you what, what we're doing over there. And because he was a paint, I mean, his, his skill was really painting oil on glass or oil on canvas. I mean, he was like a traditional artist who was capable of creating a painting that looked indistinguishable from a photograph. Right. And that's what, that's what got him drafted right out of UCLA wow. into, into ILM to do. And then he was taught how to be a map painter because the demand was so high. Wow. So I think, you know, he was an artist. I was an artist. He, he I really was hunger, hungry to learn. And I was obsessed with Star Wars. I mean, I was like crazy about Star Wars. That's all I would do is draw Star Wars and make cartoons of X-Wing fighters and TIE fighters. And then one of my best friends at uh, in elementary school, uh, his name is Jules Mann. And his dad was Jeff Mann, who was the head of the model department. So his dad was making Star uh, was making X-Wing fighters, Y-Wings and TIE fighters, the Death Star. He was the head of the miniature department wow. at Island. And I remember he had, he had created a spaceship that wasn't in Star Wars, but it looked like like the Star Wars style. And then it said Jules next on the on the on the like the name of the ship was Jules, and it had like blaster marks and stuff. And he would, he would hang it in his room, and it was like, wow, your dad makes Star Wars. Like he he makes the spaceships in Star Wars. <laughs> it was just like. That is the coolest thing ever. He, and then Jeff ended up um, running ILM. Years later, he was the, the main guy. Uh, so I had all these reasons to go to ILM and all these people that would kind of let me come through there. And I was uh, obsessed. I just wanted to learn. I, first, I wanted to learn how all the map paintings were done. Then I wanted to know how the optical printer worked, how stop motion and go motion worked. and how the creature shop, they would make these like fully articulated creatures. Like for Return of the Jedi, they had all these creatures that they were making and uh, their eyes would blink. And I got to talk to uh, Phil Tippett while he was making the Rancor. And he showed me how the Rancor puppet worked in its little um, lair. Uh, and I got to puppet it. <laughs> it's wow, like cool. insane. Um, playground yeah and that totally changed i mean it was like my well you know it was like i knew i wanted to be a filmmaker because you know i knew it was possible like my mom made cartoons and my sunday school teacher made the map paintings and my my friend's dad made the miniatures and so it was like you could it was very realistic that i felt like okay i could when i grow up i can make movies i can make a star wars movie you were not short on inspiration being in that space yeah i mean i was just very very fortunate and also i was obsessed so i would buy all the like the art of the dark crystal or the art of uh return of the jedi and these making of books you know and i would just like pour over them and memorize them um and it, it still felt like well there's so much to learn and it's and it's very i always knew it was like very competitive um but um 
but yeah, that was like a very fundamental and understanding like how these, cause, cause visual effects are like a combination between a magic trick and art. And that, and that's actually movies in general. It's a, it's, it's an illusion. It's all an illusion. Like the actors are pretending, you know, and, and the writers are writing something that's not really happening. So like everything is an illusion to create something that's not real. Uh, but then the audience has to feel something. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm so still what, just- so what happened next? <laughs> what happened What's after? That? What happened after the, the, so you're a kid, you're, you're hanging out at Sunday school with, with all the Lucas crew and mm -hmm. able to have access to that and that those people in that community. And what, yeah. what, uh, what came after that? Did you go to school and study to do this? Did you just well, get an internship or? I got a um, um, I got a video camera when I was um, thirteen, and I up until thirteen I was making um, making flipbooks, and so it was like cartoons, 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 and and then it was like I would make storyboards for movies that I couldn't make, so I was like obsessed with getting a video camera. So I finally got a video camera, um, and. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, my, um, my dad and my mom split when I was a kid. And so I didn't talk to my dad. He's Japanese. He moved back to Japan. I didn't talk to him for years. And um, he had a new family and everything. And then he wanted to re-enter my life when I was like 13 years old. And we had moved to Santa Barbara. And he calls me up out of the blue. And he's like, I want to be part of your life now. And so I, I said, okay, you can be part of my life on one condition. You can you buy me a video camera. And, uh, <laughs> that's good good leverage right there i like it <laughs> I, I don't know what, i was so obsessed with getting the video camera and i just i would go to the same i would go to this captain video place every day after school to like ask them to hold the camera they were so annoyed at me i would uh, they had like five different video cameras and i would constantly come and my mom didn't have any money so i couldn't afford to get a camera but um but i knew my dad could afford it so we met at captain video and then I came in there and they all, all the employees were, you know, they just kind of rolled their eyes every time I'd come in there, you know, cause they knew I wasn't going to buy the video camera, but I would ask politely every time. So, but this time I actually went in and bought a video camera. I bought this high eight, it was like video eight, the Sony video eight pro, you know, prosumer camera. And, um, and so I started making movies. Um, and then George Lucas, in um in 1988 george lucas did a film festival or maybe it was 1987 um he had a youth film festival and uh it was called show us the future and it was uh it was the first festival that he had done and it was like children from 18 and under and i was uh 15 years old and i made a science fiction film called the future's future and um I shot it and edited it and submitted it and I won the festival. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, I flew back to Marin County. The, the, um, the ceremony was at ILM. So now I'm back at ILM. I had been in Santa Barbara for a couple of years and I went back to Marin, back to ILM, but this time, you know, not as like a kid, but like, as like a filmmaker, 
and uh, it was really uh, life changing. Um, they had uh, taken the winners; it was like five winners, and they had uh, they interviewed them. And uh, I was like 15 years old. They ended up putting it on public television, national PBS, like my movie plus the interview with me. And um, that was crazy. I mean, that was like being anointed by George Lucas. Um, so then I was like, okay, yeah. now I'm ready. And I ended up getting um, an art grant um, when I was 17. So it's like a couple of years later uh, to, I got a $30,000 art grant to make my first feature film. And I dropped out of high school to direct this, uh, this feature. Wow. So that was like, yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, let's say. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm 50 now, so. Um, but my mom was cool about it. You know, I asked her, I was a junior in high school and I said, can I, can I drop out of high school? To, to make this movie and she said as long as uh as long as she could do the makeup and hair um and, and wardrobe <laughs> cool. uh, you know then i could drop out of high school and that's what i did i dropped out of high school made the feature film and it wasn't a very good film but i learned a lot from it and just being able to make a feature film just from beginning to end and manage the money and i had to hire and fire people I and mean, it was like a very heady experience just like the, it was like very valuable for Creative, creatively, it was valuable, but more importantly, it was really important for me to be able to just mount a production and complete it from beginning to end. So it was a full feature, like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's an hour and a half kind of... film. It's based, it's based on Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. So it was like wow. it was a play uh, that he. It was like this existential play that was you know written in the '40s, and I had kind of become obsessed with it, and so I thought, oh, I'll make that film. I'll make that play into a feature film and I'll take place in one in hell in this one room. And, uh, it was like three people are stuck in hell for eternity and hell is other people. That's their torture is that they'll just never get along. And that's kind of how I felt about high school. I just I hated it so much and I just wanted to get out. So that was like a metaphor for my high school experience was making this, <laughs> this feature film. And you literally did use it to get out. Yeah. So, so you did all this by the time you were 17 years old and, um, then what happened then? Did you actually have to go like to university well, I, or, or what happened next? Well, I remember I screened the film at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival and, um, it was, it was not a very good movie, unfortunately. And, um, I remember this, uh, this, this, this woman and her, and her daughter, got up in the middle of the movie and then they, they, they made a big fuss about it. And I was standing at the back of the theater and they walked right by me and the door opened up and the light just filled, it was a daytime screening and light just filled the, scre the, the screening room and everyone turned back and she told the usher, she goes, that's the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life. And she was standing right next to, she didn't know I was the director. And I literally fainted. I lost consciousness. I just like slid wow. down on the floor, and um, uh, and I and then I and I came to just a few minutes later, and I just I realized that I had spent because it took me two years to make the movie, and at, wow. you know, so nineteen, two years is a long time when you're a teenager, and 
I realized I worked this whole time and it was a movie that was like unreleasable and not good. And, and um, it was very painful because my first film I had won this award from Luke, George Lucas. And I thought, oh, okay, I can do, I can, I can do this. And I absolutely could not do it. And um, so I had to reassess and, okay, well, I got to do it. I got to figure out what to do now. Like, so I, um, I really wanted to go to film school because George Lucas had gone to USC and, um, and uh, Francis, Coppo Francis Coppola was, went to UCLA. I was obsessed with these directors. So I wanted to like pattern my life around these guys. So I wanted to do whatever they did, I wanted to do. And so, um, but my, my mother, although very supportive of me emotionally and intellectually, she's just always very supportive of me, um, was, uh, didn't have any money. So she was a secretary and she's, you know, she, she, when she divorced my dad and moved to Marin, she lost her animation career. So then she just became a secretary. So then it was like a secretary salary supporting both of us. And I was a horrible student and I had dropped out of high school. So there was no way I could afford to go to college. My grades were horrible. I was just did not like school at all, but I really wanted to go to film school more than anything else, but I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the grades to do it. So I was 19. And so I moved to LA and um, I got a job working at a video store and uh, lived on my friend's couch because I couldn't afford rent. And uh, I, would, I would attend film school. So I would go to USC and just, because I was 19, I was 18 and 19 years old doing this. I would just attend USC classes, film classes. And you I would go to, to do that. What did you like break in? Who showed up? Because right. I was young, so no one out, no one questioned me. So I would go to <laughs> USC, I'd go to UCLA, and I'd go to CalArts, and I would go to as many film classes as possible. And I'd made friends with some of the, the students, so I'd hang out in their dorm rooms, and you know, I would I would not do the assignments because I wasn't you enrolled. A student, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was just kind of like just. I guess they call it auditing, you know, but the, the, the teachers didn't know I was, I would just kind of keep a low profile and I would stay in the back and I would just take notes. And, um, and I did that for a couple of years. Um, huh. and, uh, yeah, and that, that, and I just watched movies and I, and I, and I would uh, read books about, and I made these little classes for myself. So like I'd get interested in a director like Martin Scorsese and then I would, I would watch every single movie that he directed in the order that he made them. And then I would go to the library and I'd get, go to the, there was this thing called microfiche where these magazines yep. would be like uh, on like film and I get those. them printed out. So I would read all these articles like an American film or time or something, you know, like all these different magazines that they would do interviews with these directors where they would like promote the film they were talking about you know, whatever that film was. So I'd, I'd watch the film and I'd read all these magazines, articles about the making of that film, or I'd find books about that film or read interviews. I would just kind of obsess over that person's entire career. That would be like a month. Then I move on to like Robert Zemeckis and I would just like watch all his movies in the order that he made them and read all those articles about it, go to get Starlog back order, Starlog magazines or whatever, and just kind of make my own curriculum. Wow. So 
so did you manage to actually like get onto a degree or did you just basically you sat there through a degree and soaked up as much as you could and then i don't have a high school i don't have a high school degree or a college degree wow okay i have a junior high school diploma i I managed to get a junior high school barely yeah right so so then how did your um filmmaking kind of take its what happened what happened after that so you've gone through some study you'd had a bunch of very early experiences of making movies and getting to be around all these people. Yeah. Um, what, what did you do after, after that? Um, so then uh, my grandmother died and I got an inheritance of about $20,000. And so I decided I would uh, use that money to make a, a film. I had written a screenplay called Fagan's Children. And um, so I decided I would make a film um, and again, I was like, um, throughout my early 20s, um, up to my mid 20s, I was mostly homeless. Like I would, I would live on people's couches and things like that. Uh, and I would work minimum wage jobs, like working at video, lots of working at video stores and working at theaters. I mean, where you can't actually make a living. But it would be like, I would find a job where I could just kind of pour myself into movies so that I would not deter deter my time like i didn't i didn't want to spend any time doing anything that wasn't making movies yeah so it was like i was this monk you know um so i got this twenty thousand dollars and i spent almost the entire amount on film film stock because it was like right. shooting on black and white 16 millimeter so i'd go to i go to kodak and get all this film and and then um i was shooting the film in santa barbara so I had friends who were going to film school at Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara, which is like a cinematography school. And they had like Bolex 16 millimeter cameras and they would have like Nagra sound machines and they had editing facilities and lights and all this other stuff. And so I'd get these, these students, I convinced these film students to like take out equipment on the weekend for my movie. And because um, they were all working on like little assignments, but they, this was a feature film. So this is a screenplay I wrote, I, uh, that I wrote. And so it's, it, it was like, they're making a feature film. So it, was, it would benefit them to work on a feature film and it would benefit for me to get all the free equipment. So right. I cast all the actors from UCLA. So I was living in LA and then I would shoot the movie in Santa Barbara. Uh, so on Santa, on weekends, I'd shoot this on Santa, uh, during, uh, I'd shoot it in Santa Barbara during weekends. I get the actors to fly or drive to Santa Barbara, and they would like crash on friends' couches and stay in motels and things like that. And uh, that was took a couple of years to make that film, and then that film didn't get distribution, but it was a good film. A film it was good enough to kind of get attention from Hollywood, right. and um, and so I ended up. Um, getting an agent and writing screenplays. Um, so in my mid twenties, I was like writing screenplays. So I got, I got to write a screenplay for John Carpenter. Um, like one of my first jobs was this job. It was a, it was a script that was written by Ray Bradbury in the fifties. I was hired to rewrite it and update it and work with Ray for John. So I would have these weekly meetings. So I'd write all week and then get notes from John Carpenter and Ray Bradbury. 
I was like 26 years old. Wow. I mean, it was like, that must've been pretty cool. It was incredible. And I was getting paid all this money. All of a sudden I was making good money. I mean, I'd been sleeping on couches, you know, right. renting people's, I had for, for like three years, I was renting a kitchen pantry. I was living in a kitchen pantry. Wow. That, you, actually, that, that, you actually paid rent for, a, for the pantry. Yeah, because it was only like wow. $250. So it was wow. it was a pantry. It wasn't anymore. But like I put a mattress, I put a futon in it. And then the shelves were filled with like movies and books and things like that. It didn't have food in it still. No, it didn't have food in it. So I cleared okay. the food out. And then, and then, you know, there was it was a house of like five 20 somethings. So it was like, hey, they, they all got to get paid less rent because I was in the pantry. And so <laughs> I was only, you know, so. As an so, yeah. American pantry, I guess it's probably bigger than a British. I'm thinking of British pantries as they're fairly small. It was small. It was like, it. <laughs> I could, I can only put like a, a single, like a twin size futon. So it was just, it was like a, it was like a coffin. Right. You know, um, so you're living in but, a pantry, but working on the Hollywood movies. Well, I, I was working on the, the, I was living in the pantry and then all of a sudden I got the screenwriting job. I had met right. this producer. He liked my movie. He read one of my screenplays because I was like writing screen. I had written like five screenplays while like living in the pantry and like working at, um, you know, a movie theater and working at a video job for like $5 an hour. So it was just like this trade-off, you know, I could be really poor and, but then spent almost all my time like writing and studying film and getting good, mastering my craft. And then all of a sudden it oh. hit and I got screenwriting job after screenwriting job. And then you moved out of the pantry, presumably. Moved out of the pantry. <laughs> yeah, I got a nice place in downtown Santa Barbara. Right. So that that's kind of where it, where it took off then when you, so you started by writing movies for for people yeah and you're also writing your own you've written a bunch of your own um were you doing kind of both at the same time making your own yeah. films and doing because I've, I've done a little bit of that and it's sometimes it's tough when you're you're just kind of burning the candle at both ends like that how did you Absolutely. manage to like keep your own stuff going and i just i didn't have i mean i just didn't have a life i mean i didn't have a girlfriend right. i didn't yeah. have any hobbies or or anything like that i just sort of was like everything was just movies 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 and then in 1999 i took i was able to raise some money and use some of my own money from the screenwriting jobs and i was able to make a pilot a television pilot it was a sci-fi pilot called tomorrow never knows and that was the first time i worked in cg and it was kind of like virtual production um it was um, the show was kind of like the twilight zone. So every episode, I only did one, but, um, the idea was like, it was a different future every week. So it was like, you know, an anthology, like the twilight zone, That's cool. um, but it was like a, a story from the future from different futures of, that the idea would be with different possible futures every week. Wow. So this was, um, I, I put together a team of puppet makers. So I had these puppets and the puppets um were kind of like um you know that that british show um called captain scarlet okay yeah um you know jerry anderson um 
it was like these puppets that were like had rods underneath them. <laughs> I guess they yeah. were super marionation, so it was like marionettes. So this was like rods from beneath. And so they could blink and move their head and talk and everything. And um, and it was all done in kind of a retro future style. So it looked like it looked like the like the early 1960s vision of the future. And um, and it was in black and white. Um, really a weird, weird little show. Um, but we shot it in front of we shot these puppets, live action puppets in front of green screen. And then I created um, these CG backgrounds um, in uh, 3D Studio Max and Bryce. I don't know if you remember. I, I definitely do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so like 3D Studio Max. Water, like, mountains. And that's that's right. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we, com we combined 3D Studio Max and Bryce. And um, and I, I'm not um, what they call on the box. Like, I don't know how to actually create visual effects on a computer. But I know how it's all done. And I can direct visual effects artists. And um, and for my training for my mom and Chris Chris Evans, I know how to sort of push an artist, a CG artist, to get to photorealism or to get to uh, a level that maybe they couldn't do on their own, uh, because I've been trained um, to know what looks fake and then and then how to achieve to push it into into photorealism. Um, just and don't, which just is, don't ever tell them that it looks good. You just wait until the times run out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's all kinds of tricks to be able to work with a digital artist because yeah. CG artists are not really taught about the limitations of photography. Like for instance, like photography, there's a limit to like just for for instance, like exposure. Exposure. There's a limit to the kind of exposure. Like if this is exposed and then that wouldn't be exposed or that would be crushed to black or like in, in CG, you can kind of create any kind of exposure. There's no limit. Um, also like black, uh, like when things are really, really dark, uh, our eyes, it's like camera and also eyes, like how our eyes see things. Like the darker it is, the more saturation we don't see. Like I remember Chris Evans was painting a, a map painting for um, ET and he was painting this forest scene and it, I looked at his palette and his palette was just lots of variations of gray. Mm. So he's painting these trees and they're all black and white, like variations of gray. And I asked him like, what's going on? Like trees are green, <laughs> you know? And he's like, well, at nighttime, trees are black and white. And so, um, like he, a lot of things like that, where he taught me about how we see things. So like, if you create a CG forest at nighttime, sometimes the inclination is we'll make all the trees green without really knowing that we, and, and they're like, why does that look fake? You know, and they won't know because they, they have a lot of times CG artists aren't taught about optics or how, how lenses work or how our, our eyes work. It's more like how the software works and how to make something really pretty. Um, but making something pretty and making something that's real is two different things. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to, to hear you talk about that because we've got these kind of two camps. You've got the filmmakers and the visual effects people. And for, for the longest time, we've been really separate. And 
the visual effects people didn't really get to learn about filmmaking because you just at the end of the process executing on small pieces of the thing as opposed to getting the whole thing necessarily maybe the vfx hoops crossing into the other camp but the filmmakers the other the other way around don't necessarily understand how the yeah. visual effects are getting done but it's but really right sad now, they keep them so separate it's like it's yeah. very sad the way that big hollywood movies work like the the artists have no no connection with the director that's why i think right now is a really exciting time because we're in this we're in this new phase where it is possible to to mix the two and the the visual effects artists are being kind of brought into that conversation because they happen in virtual production anyway because it happens before the shoot now you have that opportunity to right. to inject those people into the early part of the process which has not not really happened before so i think it's a, it's hopefully changing and i think a lot of things are being shaken up um oh yeah i think that's the best part of it and also you've got smaller crews and, and yeah. the only reason why the, the filmmakers and the, and the cg um visual effects people are sort of se separated is because there's like a hundred of them and so there's all this these higher hierarchies where you've got like a lead and the supervisor and and the supervisor who supervises and and all of this kind of stuff so because you have to do it that way because there's so many hundreds of people involved but what's great about virtual production is that you can limit those crews and they, they can be small groups of artists who are doing a lot and i I know that sounds like, oh no, less people employed, but I, I do think that there's the opportunity instead of just having like three Marvel movies, but like hundreds and hundreds of smaller projects with smaller crews, all telling all kinds of variations of stories. Cause I think that's what we really need. We need more interesting projects instead of just like a couple tent poles where there's like no creativity. There's just driving deadlines and crushing spirits you know i mean like nobody wins with these giant movies because even the filmmakers aren't winning because they're not really even directed by anybody these giant like marvel movies there's no direct there's no director the directors come in and, and they're being told what to do by executives and it's already been previs by you know a group of people a year before and you know what i mean like there's no there's no vision anymore. You know, it's just like this, everyone's just a cog in this gigantic machine. These like $200 million movies. So it seems like it's ripe for, because the, the access is now some of the best it's ever been to filmmaking equipment and visual effects tools um, for somebody or, or some people to, to kind of disrupt this and start telling their own stories like you you've been explaining how at the beginning of your journey um you you fought to get access to to rudimentary filmmaking equipment uh, at this point in time that same kind of budget gets yeah. you access to oh, a camera amazing. a machine yeah. the software's kind of all free yeah. to a great extent I mean, it was like young filmmakers really like today they don't know like what we went through to get just even film you know i mean i was spending so much of my precious money you know, on film stock. And then I could only do like one or two takes because I'd run out of film. I mean, film was like a hundred dollars a minute. That's right. how long, hundred dollars, another hundred dollars. You don't use every, every second in film. So you're just throwing away hundreds of dollars. So now it's like free. You can get a camera pretty easily. And then it's just on a little card and, 
and then CG, I mean, with virtual production and Unreal Engine, I mean, when I was doing, in 1999, I was doing this, this pilot and we were working with Bryce and, and uh, 3D Studio Max. And, you know, it would take days to render a shot. Yep. And, and it was, uh, you know, and if I didn't like the shot, we'd have to do it all over again. Days would go by, you know, and it's like tedious. So even early visual effects was tedious. And then you know, the machines were really expensive, you know, like, um, like a million dollars for like a, one of these, uh, Silicon graphics workstations. Like they, yeah. yeah. Silicon graphics. They, in, I was living in Santa Barbara. And that was Wavefront. It was right there downtown Santa Barbara. And that's where they had these computers. And it was like, I just knew certain people. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like I just happened to go to Marin for that. And then in Santa Barbara with the Silicon Wavefront, Silicon Gra graphics. I mean, like I just happened to be in these places and it's like the doors just kind of open. So I was able to kind of learn things and have access to things. And it was very difficult back then, but now um, it is, you don't really need to be like just lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. Like, you know, Unreal Engine's free. You just download it. <laughs> you know, it's like it can do everything that Jurassic Park. You know, you can make Jurassic Park on a regular computer now. You know, with 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 um, uh, Unreal Engine, and it could look even better than Jurassic Park if you're good. If you're if you're a good enough artist, you know, that's that's I, the thing. So, what what would you say to somebody now, like who's a kid or the, the beginning of the their filmmaking journey, at least? Um, given that the environment now is completely different, they may not necessarily have to live in a pantry um, to to push themselves forward. Um, what would you what would what would you do if if you had all of these things that we've got now back then? Yeah, geez, that's a good question. I don't, you know, um, my little. Uh, private film school that I went to, you know, when I was like, I would watch all of Martin Scorsese's movie, movies in the order that he made them. And I would cross-reference all of the, you know, I would just obsess about the history of film and understand the language of cinema. And all of that was actually the most valuable thing I could have done for my career in Hollywood. Uh, because um, people who are really successful in this business, um, they have that knowledge. They have this crazy encyclopedic knowledge of film history and film grammar uh, that really is take, you need to dedicate yourself. I mean, right now you don't need to go to the library because I was going to the library and getting old magazines and microfiche and everything. Now you get the internet, all that stuff's available. That was the so, internet back then. <laughs> right, exactly, that was the internet, the yeah. library. Um, yeah. But so the information is there readily available even more than ever but you have to have a discipline and an obsession. It's not really discipline. People go, you're so disciplined. I'm just obsessed. I mean, I can't, I have a compulsion. It's like a, it's like a weird retardation. Like I'm, I'm not normal. Like I, I, I'm obsessed constantly. Even now I'm obsessed with film and film history and, and understanding. I just feel like there's so much to learn. Uh, I've been at this my whole life. I feel like I'm just starting to figure it out. There's so much more to learn, but the, my point is, is that the door to Hollywood was because of the knowledge that I achieved from those obsessive studyings. Like for instance, I ran into, to, uh, this is like, 
I was like 20 years old or 19 or 20 years old. And I ran into Robert Zemeckis. Um, he was in a doctor's office and he was sitting there with his wife and I didn't know why they were in the doctor's office. So I didn't want to be rude, but like he got up and went into the, into the doctor's office and the, you know, I was in the waiting room and his wife was there and I walked up to his wife and I was like, oh my God, you know, your, your husband is like my hero. I just, I love him so much. And she said, well, what do you like about him? And I was like, well, his student film at USC, uh, Field of Honor is like the best student film ever. And then I want to hold your hand His first feature film about the Beatles is, is super duper fucking great. And then I loved used cars, his second film. And then and then he wrote 1941 for Steven Spielberg. And then he did Back to the Future. Um, he did um, um, Romance in the Stone. Um, Death Becomes Her. You know, I, I, I uh, Who Friend Roger Rabbit. Like I listed all his movies in the order that he made them, even the movies that he just wrote and didn't direct. And I knew his collaborators and I knew all of the studios that, and this is before I had a smartphone where I could just, IMDb it. It was just all up here. And so I was able to just recall all of it and then deliver it with such passion and love to his wife. And so then she said, well, Bob would love to meet you. Why don't you come over to the house? Ah. So we had, we then arranged for a meeting for me to go over to his house. And so I got there and the, there was like a housekeeper. They live in this gigantic, epic mansion in Montecito and um that I guess the you know the the back to the future franchise paid for or something but I mean he's got so many huge films and um so they said well you've got five minutes right and so I'm sitting there in his living room and he comes in and I said I've got some questions for you that is pad of all these like 20 questions so I sat down with him and I was like, why do you have lightning in all your movies? And he was, he said, well, I don't have lightning in all my movies. And I was like, yes, you do. Every single one of your movies. In fact, Back to the Future, it's the thing that sends him back to the future, mm. was, is lightning. And he's like, you're right, I have lightning in all my movies. I didn't know that. And then <laughs> an hour later, we were like still hanging out and talking and, um, you know, I was able to really hang out with him and ask him all the questions I wanted to. And he really opened his life to me. And it was because I had all of this knowledge about his career and about just filmmaking in general that he opened. There was like this. It was, I could almost hear like a like a key going into a big lock and clunk and, you know, opening and then walking in. And I've had, you know. I've had so many of those, those experiences. Um, and, and it really has to do with like my passion and my knowledge and my obsession and my dedication to the art form of filmmaking and um, in all of its attributes. I mean, I'm, I'm just as passionate about acting and writing and directing as I am with visual effects and music and composition and, and, even the me mechanics and of the business and the distribution and finance, like it's all really fascinating to me. And I know the history of it. And because of that, when I do talk to people who are like on another level, they kind of reach, I'm reaching up to them and they reach down to me and they bring me up. 
and I think if that's the biggest bit of a bit of advice I can give any young filmmaker is just like have the respect for the business to understand what it is exactly that you want to join. You know, it is joining a community with a history and there are factions and tribes. And when you enter the business, whoever you are, you know, if you are a visual effects person, you should know who Douglas Trumbull is. You should know why he's important. Um, you should understand um, who these characters, who these people are, and then who their mentors were. You know, like Ray, Ray Harryhausen has a lineage with someone like Phil Tippett. You know, they have, he is Ray Harryhausen of today. And then there's going to be someone who is Phil's replacement when he's ready to go. You know, it's like there are these, like there is a living, breathing lineage and a, and a, and a kind of a continuum. And if you want to enter it, you got to know where you belong. Like you belong to a, a tribe and you need to know who your tribe is. And then, how do you, and then you'll, how do you find, how do you find where you belong? You know, I think now it's like social media um, is like the new town square. I mean, if you, if you're in LA, you can like go to the writer's guild or you can go to the director's guild. They have events and things like that. I mean, there's LA is like, I don't live in LA anymore, but I go on the regular and there's, there's a community, there's events and, um, but online, you know, you can friend someone on, on Facebook, you know, or yeah. Instagram, and then they start to follow you and you can, um, but there's like, it's like a secret handshake, you know, it's like understanding why that person's important, what they contributed, who their mentors were. And then you literally ask for mentorship. I mean, I've asked for mentorship from, from Bob Zemeckis. You know, I asked for mentorship from George Lucas. I asked for mentorship from, from Francis Coppola. And there are certain people who've been gracious enough to give me um, mentorship. And sometimes it's, as you know, I was a, Chris Evans got me a job. My first job in the, in Hollywood was digital domain as a production assistant. He gave me that job, but I earned it. You know, I earned it from like thousands of hours of making flip books and drawing and making films and understand wanting to learn from him and the rest of the, the guys at ILM, you know, so that, so that I would be um, worthy of a referral. What's well, a fascinating history of your yourself and the film industry. Um, and I think the, the, some great um, insights to take from that is to study, know your history, study your history, understand the, the playing field, learn, learn the fundamentals, learn, learn about how this, who makes it and how they make it and study it. And um, the, the tools I think are, are transient, but those, those principles are kind of timeless. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Now, now we're in this. Yeah. Have you, what about you? I mean, you, you, you hold a, a very important position in the history of, of filmmaking, virtual production and the, that transition from, you know, normal visual effects to what is now a very, it's like, you know, violently game engine is it's like a violent change. It's not a little change. It's a massively 
violent change that's very disruptive. I mean, didn't you have mentorship from people who were above you that you somehow impressed or connected with and then you were able to learn from and, and vice and vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I bought the making of Jurassic Park book when I was 14, I think, and obsessed over it. I was I was, you know, different I was in South London, I had I was 14, I had no work permit, no skills. There was absolutely no chance I was gonna go get to work. I applied about eight times, I think. Eventually, 20 something years later, I got to go work at ILM, but it was a long process of, of continuing like with the obsession, as you said, you don't need discipline if you're obsessed. It's just, you're just gonna do it anyway. Um, so I, I kept doing it and I didn't I didn't let go of the, the vision. Um, and I, I was lucky at some points and I felt unlucky at others, but yeah, I was, Jungle Book was really a really lucky moment where I happened to be at Digital Domain and was presented with this opportunity. And most people actually turned it down because they thought that it was a fad and it was going to go away. And like using game engines to make movies, this is not a real thing. This isn't visual effects. This is like some weird previous that's going to disappear. And, I was really, I was really lucky to be there at that moment, and I, I still had to fight uh, to to get it. I remember having to be persistent with the recruiter and and keep going. I kept going up to the door every day, saying like, uh, "Do you hear hear, hear anything yet?" No, I, I wanted to do it because it sounded really exciting and interesting, and I got to to go do that, and it it was a great moment because you know, that at that point nobody really was thinking about that, nobody knew about it. It took years actually for it to kind of catch on and become known about publicly and at this point in time is it's, it's rampantly taking off so I'm, I'm very glad that um i had that kind of luck and insight and but it did build on top of um a lot of hard work and sacrifices and i, I didn't ever live in a pantry i don't think but uh the equivalent of that where I've, i remember when i was younger saying to my friends i'm not going to see you for I, a year. I'm just going to get my head down. I'm going to work on this thing. I'm going to change my life this year. And I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to go do that. All that stuff. I'll come back to it. I'm sure I did. But yeah, just being being um, understanding that you've got something that's worth chasing after is makes makes life worth living. I think. And if you're lucky enough to have had that insight, which I think comes about through experimentation, mostly trying a bunch of stuff and seeing what what resonates with you. Um, yeah, I, I, I felt very lucky to have been in that, that position, um, be able to um, be able to do that. Yeah. So, uh, but this, this is, um, yeah, no problem if your, your camera's dropped, but uh, we can still keep chatting anyway, because it's largely an audio podcast. So we'll, we'll just keep going. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about your your uh, journey into virtual production because you you have embraced this wholeheartedly and, and made some movies using it. I'm sorry. What what, um, uh, what piqued your interest in in this new way of making movies? Does, was it something that you kind of saw coming because of your own curiosity? Was there some event? What uh, I, I did not see it coming at all. Um, right. It was uh, my business partner. Uh, Joan Webb um, was the one who introduced it to me. I had, I was aware of the Unreal Engine. I did not think it was a cinematic tool worth um, pursuing. Um, 
but because it looked like a, it looked like a video game. And so um, I had never seen it look photorealistic. So it was just something that was interesting. And I thought maybe eventually we'll, you know, get there. But um, but she kept uh, persistently telling me about it and saying that this was something that I should look at. There was a demo about three, three and a half years ago, maybe that um, was being uh, that was in Burbank and it was an LED volume with the Unreal Engine. And um, it was um, something you could sign up and just go and take a look at. So she said, you got to come over there. You got to look at it. And so I went down there, not really thinking of, you know, just sort of like because she told me to. So I said, okay, Joan, I'll do it for you. So I get, I go there. My dad was visiting from Japan. It was, it was like a mile away from my house in Burbank. And so I just, my dad and I just walked there and, um, I walked in there and they gave me, they gave me the camera. Um, and I asked my dad to stand on this mark in front of the volume and I moved the camera and it had parallax. The environment did not look photo real, but it was a little out of focus. Mm-hmm. And the depth of it and that real time parallax was something that I'll never forget. I mean, it it knocked my socks off. Right. And it was the coolest magic trick I'd ever seen. And um I um I had just been hired to direct this movie um, called Gods of Mars. And it was not fully financed, but there was some money enough to hire me and my production designer and to do some development work. So I had hired Fawn Davis, who was a miniature maker at ILM for episodes one, two, and three. He worked on the Star Wars prequels. Yep. And he did he did a lot of miniatures for that show and I wanted to do miniatures. I really, really love old style visual effects. Practical. Uh, practical. Yeah. yeah. Matte paintings, miniatures, creature, animatronic creatures, practical stuff. I, I love CGI too, but I I love the kind of imperfection that miniatures have. And a lot of the stuff just that old style visual effects to me, sometimes it just looks better. And so, um, but a lot of those techniques are, are impossible to create nowadays because literally those artists don't even exist anymore. They're, they've retired. (laughs) There's no pipeline to employ. And so, um, schools aren't teaching you studios that work for people to learn from. Yeah. Makes sense. So like the last studio that does miniatures is, is, is Fonco. It's Fon's, Fon Davis's studio in LA. So I was able to hire Fon to, to do some development on the movie. And the idea that I was going to do is I was going to shoot the entire movie with green screen and trackers for, for camera tracking. And then I was going to, I was going to have Fon and his team build every, the entire Martian landscape and all of the interiors and exteriors would be miniatures. Yeah. And um, so, and I was just going to compo- composite it like I did with my little 
1999 television pilot. And um, so that was, that was what my plan was. And so. And then you went to the demo. I went to the demo (laughs) and I was like, like, wait a second. So then I talked to the guy there and I said, um, I, I think what would, what would be really good is to scan miniatures and then put them in the Unreal Engine. Right. And, um, and I asked the guy, is that possible? And he goes, I guess it's possible. (laughs) And so, um, I thought, well, maybe that'll make it look more realistic. And so Epic, um, so then Joan told me, Hey, there's a unreal, uh, the, the mega mega grant from Epic, you know, you should apply to that. So I wrote a grant and I applied and I got it. And, uh, so, and the grant was to create all of the stuff that I wanted in the film is miniatures first and then scan them and then put them in the unreal engine and see if that helped. Cause the Quixel mega scans look absolutely flawless in the unreal engine. That was something that I felt like really, really was like a huge breakthrough for, but they haven't sent their guys to Mars yet. So. (laughs) <laughs> so I figured, okay, well, a lot of the Martian the Mars collection could be, could be done that way, but then all the spaceships I thought could be done with miniatures. So, yeah. um, so we ended up um, getting that grant, and then we were put the movie kind of on hold and just do R and D. And so we did that, and then COVID hit, and so it was sort of like forced into R and D anyway. So we spent like. A year and a half just figuring out that pipeline and and additionally um we were able to uh hire a former industrial light and magic matte painter uh jet green who was working there when i was a kid when i'd go there as like 10 years old she was there i met her and now i, I was able to hire her and do matte paintings and then we would put the matte paintings in 3d space in the Unreal in the Engine. Engine. Yeah. Right. Because I felt like the Unreal Engine sky was not very realistic. And the clouds and the whole like ultra dynamic sky, it's got some cool things to it, but it's like you can't, the clouds are moving and you can't get them to go back to where you wanted them to be. They're just sort of like, it's like painting with like watercolor. It's like, it just does, you put the watercolor brush and it just starts to, ooh, it starts to go, right? And you can't control it, you know? So um, I thought, you know, I would like a cloud right there and I'd like it to be exactly that way and not move around, you know? And then I wanted like layers of clouds. And so we started making clouds as matte paintings. And then by moving the camera around, it would create this nice little parallax. And so we were working on like trying to make the Unreal Engine look as photoreal as possible and then we by utilizing old style visual effects like matte paintings and miniatures and it took us a while to do it but we ended up figuring out a way that i'm really happy with now how did you do the scanning we did every single kind of scanning you can think of (laughs) um to try to figure out what was the best you know way um we were able to get 
Joan actually was able to reach out to Arctic, Ar Arctic, and we got like a, a half million dollar scanner. I mean, it was like this incredibly expensive piece of machinery that was given to us as a sponsor. We were able to get like three, four million dollars worth of equipment from various sponsors. Uh, she was able to secure these great, you know, these sponsors like Lenovo and and um, oh, I wish I had a list of all the uh, the uh, the brands that, <laughs> that we had. Um, anyway, I'm embarrassed. I I I forgot, but it's like it's like a dozen companies that gave us like all this great gear. Um, you could send us the links afterwards. Well, we can post them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was wonderful. I mean, we were able to really get, uh, and then we were able to get another mega grant. Um, and really it was because we were venturing into new territory and a lot of these companies would like to establish themselves as the companies of record that could, that could pull off, you know, virtual production. Cause we're still, it, it's still a big Petri dish. I mean, we're still trying to figure out what is, um how to how to do this i mean um one of the things i left out of my little journey is that i became a visual effects supervisor um in the in the in the early 2000s um and i was um i worked on a couple sci-fi channel movies um the, this one of them is lava lantula where um i had to create like hundreds of giant spiders, fire breathing uh, sp spiders. And I learned a lot about the whole pipeline. Um, and I and I was taking a lot that I learned from Digital Domain and ILM to, to do uh, like a, you know, a virtual production company where people were working from home. And uh, I had a team uh, that were in the hundreds of, of artists that were working in Maya and Nuke and um, and uh, collaborating all from home um which at that time had not been done because of security reasons um yeah, that's right yeah it's impossible that's what they said it can never it'll never be done and then in the space of one week they <laughs> possible. <laughs> yeah it was yeah. um it was something that um that had never been done before wired magazine did a story about us uh, you know and how we had you know 300 artists from 50 countries and and now everything's done that way. Um, but, um, you know, I, I was never able to um, really be a visual effects supervisor at a big company like like you. Uh, I never really understood. I, I mean, I, my experience was sort of like as a child, you know, uh, but as an adult, I never worked at ILM or, you know, Digital Domain, I was like a production assistant in my early 20s. So like, I was kind of creating my own company and figuring out how to do it just by hook or by crook, you know? And, um, and so, um, I think that the, the advantage that we had was that we were all remote and which was a disadvantage. So that meant I was never going to work on like a Disney movie or something like that. So it was like little sci-fi channel movies. They're not so concerned with, with like security and things like that. So sharing files over the internet was not a, not a, a big deal, but, um, but the process of doing gods of Mars, I had to, you know, I had like 10 years of visual effects training of like what each software program did and how they all work together. You know, there's like the, 
there's like the modeling people and then there's the texturing people and there's the shading people and there's the rigging people and the animation people and then the comping people and there's an order to all of that and you know there's a there's a structure that the whole industry works in and i learned that whole process um and then i had to abandon that entire process uh while we were working on gods of mars because we were working with the unreal engine and and so like oh, i had to throw away like everything that I had learned and, and working with these new artists, these, these game engine artists who had only done video games um, and then combining their, their skills and ability with established VFX people. It was like, we are all at the bottom. We all had to, you know, it was very humbling because yeah. we all had to learn from the very, very, very beginning. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, been a great leveler to level the playing field to a great extent i think there's so many people that have been in the industry for a really long time that now all of a sudden don't know everything and it's good because it's making everybody go back to school which is great and it's absolutely it's fascinating oh, oh. so joan is just texting me cook optics black magic design asus nvidia wacom um strategy ct creative technology lenovo there's more too, but anyway, um, ironically, in real time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess I just really love having to figure stuff out, um, where no one has figured it out before. So there's like no roadmap. Um, and I think it, um, uh, what I'm, what I'm really excited about is like, being able to democratize the workflow because like Maya, when, when I first started working with Maya or artists that had Maya, Maya was like $20,000. And as you said, the machine that you had to run it on was a few hundred grand. And right. how are you going to learn it? Because you, know, you can't learn it unless you're in a facility. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's and so that there's this barriers to entry, you know, and it's like, um, you know, as a director and as a storyteller, I want to tell stories that I'm really interested interested in science fiction and, and fantasy, and and so I want to tell stories that are really fantastical. But like, I don't have the budget for that because I'm most of the time I'm like self financing my projects, and so um, you know I don't live in a in a kitchen pantry anymore. But uh, I don't have like millions of dollars, and um, and so what's so exciting for me now is that I'm able to do something like a gods of mars or you know i just i'm just now finishing a, a feature film called the tarot which i have been making for five years and i've been self-financing it and uh just as, as as i can afford to shoot another scene kind of thing on weekends and there was a bunch of scenes that i was able to to accomplish uh, like 150 shots all done in the unreal engine that i i really could not afford uh so they were just sitting on a shelf like gathering dust until until all of this started happening and and so what's exciting for me is as a storyteller now i can tell the stories i want to tell without having to raise millions of dollars but also there's this whole generation of young filmmakers who also are living in kitchen pantries who want to tell stories that are big and you know huge sci-fi fantasy movies or epic stories like lawrence of arabia or something like that and now they can tell these stories like a like a low budget movie doesn't have to look like clerks anymore. Right. So, so you already gave a couple pieces of advice um, to those people 
like learn your learn your fundamentals go study your history learn the foundational principles of filmmaking um what uh what what else would you tell people or what um what are you excited about doing next well the the tarot is really what i'm excited that, that's my main project right now i'm just doing the sound mix on it right now and um that's um uh, a supernatural thriller that i wrote and directed and um and i'm, I'm very excited about that film uh and so um um but and there's a lot of other projects that are kind of in the wind right now that i'm excited about uh working on but i'm, I'm also really excited about helping virtual production get on its feet and yeah. um so like right now there's 13 led volumes in la and they're almost all dark meaning they're just sitting there people have invested millions of dollars they're sitting and waiting. Um, they're expensive to rent, and there's not enough people who know actually how to accomplish virtual production to rent those stages and make something. So, like, the industry itself doesn't quite understand what's possible. Like, there's some misconceptions. Like, virtual production can be much, much cheaper than traditional production. And I think that that's a misunderstanding. A lot of people think it's more expensive because the Mandalorian is, has made it famous, has made virtual production famous. And the Mandalorian is the most expensive television show in the history of TV. So they just assume yeah. virtual production is expensive and people know, oh, these LED walls are millions of dollars. So, but that's not the only kind of virtual production that can be, you don't need an LED volume to do virtual production. And so I think that there's the industry and the, you know, the mainstream Hollywood industry needs education. So that's what, what's so great about what you guys are doing. It's so important that the, that the industry um, have an education, understand how virtual production is done, how you can save money, how you can execute on it. Um, and then there's the whole world of independent filmmaking uh, that is gonna really change independent filmmaking in the most fundamental dramatic way that it's ever been this is the biggest biggest change since the advent of color or sound or something like that i mean it's this way even bigger than that yeah, it's really it's really cool to see what people are doing from and especially as you said from the indie perspective we, we had a, a recent student uh, who did the our course our flagship course on real for filmmakers and he used that to make a pitch for the movie he wanted to make and then went out and did a kickstarter um byron byron chow is a, is a very talented young man he uh went out and did a kickstarter raised about 25 grand and then made his movie and used a smaller led actually used an led volume and used a smaller one that was more affordable in, in la and uh yeah some great results you know we can we can share the links to it and hopefully we'll be doing a feature on it soon because this thing is a, a fine example of, of exactly what you're saying the fact that independent filmmakers can can use this stuff it's not just the domain of of large budget big features um if you're smart with it and if you understand it and 
yeah, it's a it's an exciting time. It really well, uh, is. So I wanted to ask you before we wrap: is there is there anything that you'd like to uh, share with people? Do you have any um, links or website or anything that you'd love to people to follow you on or uh, know about that you're doing? Well, um, our company is called Ronin Film, R-O-N-I-N-F-I-L-M dot com, and. There's a lot of examples of what we're doing there. Um, we've got some tutorials on, you know, how we were able to accomplish certain shots. Um, that are on this. Uh, if you go to the, the website, it's the go to the VFX breakdowns. Um, you can see how we were able to accomplish certain shots uh, using the Unreal Engine. Um, and then, uh, well, I think my camera's back up again. Aha! There you go. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you and see you now. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've made a bunch of these uh, tutorials. I mean, they're not really tutorials, but they're sort of behind the scenes so that you can see how, how the shots are accomplished um, sort of intuitively. Um, and, um, yeah, and then um, the tarot will be done in a couple months, and then I'm going to be... Um, hopefully, releasing it uh, in theaters um, independently. Oh, cool. Which is like COVID kind of shut down. Uh, uh, a couple things happened during COVID. Movies stopped being made for the theaters. And uh, so there's, there's like a small amount of, I mean, this is kind of part of what I think is so exciting about this time in, in filmmaking history, which is... Um, the, all the theater chains were booked up with studio movies as far as we're alive. And, and every Friday, there would be five to six movies since the birth of us. Uh, every Friday, there's been five to six new movies every Friday. And now there's an average of like two. And so theaters for the first time are like accepting independence to make a deal directly with them, completely sidestepping distribution. Uh, or exhibitors, cool. or, uh, distribution companies and going directly to theaters. So it's now possible to go ahead and like release a movie independently. Couldn't do that before. Uh, so that's exciting. And then making a movie that looks like a huge epic movie for a very low amount of money. I mean, these cameras are really super cheap. You can edit on your computer. You can now do all kinds of amazing things with the Unreal Engine. All this stuff is like free or cheap. I mean, there's like Blender and there's all these things that you can do as a filmmaker to achieve like spectacle, like really breathtaking spectacle that was really reserved for, for multi-million dollar movies. And so this is the moment in film history where that kind of spectacle that was reserved for only James Cameron and on $200 million budgets, we're about to see a fundamental shift where some kid out there is going to be able to make a movie that looks better than Avatar and spent $20. And um, that's going to radically change. It won't be, it'll be like before movies before that. And then movies after it's like AD and BC kind of thing. So yeah, your advice earlier on um, rings true at the end here where you're talking about 
learning storytelling basically because if everybody has access to the tools then the thing that stands out is the story right absolutely yeah i mean the story is everything you know uh, amazing images are really there to just support and i guess you know like it used to be that you know when you were coming up in visual effects, it was like you would be lucky if you could just be a very important cog in a gigantic wheel in a in a machine, right? You could do, you'd be an artist, but you could just do one little piece. You couldn't like tell a story. You would be there to just do one little piece of the story. And now, it's possible to have much more of a contribution to the to the overall story. You could really just not just do animation or just do a comp or it, it doesn't have to be all compartmentalized that. Like you could really be a, a full artist and do, you know, the entire film really yourself or with a small group of people and do something like The Lion King or, you know, Jungle Book it, just with a group of friends, right? In your dorm room or something like that. And it would be as good it's we're now on that it's gonna happen exciting exciting times and um, i'm with you on that one yeah very very exciting time to to be alive and no uh no shortcuts in terms of creative and learning learning how to tell good stories and be a good artist and it's still artistry AI. exactly yeah. it's still artistry and storytelling at the end of the day these are things that are free but you know time is money you know it does take a thousand hours to master these things. It just doesn't happen overnight. You have to dedicate yourself and learn artistry. You've given away a lot of, of tips today and talking about how you got access to that lineage and got access to those people. And really, really, I think that's what we're all aiming for. You can uh, you can read books about it. That's the best access I had in South London as a kid, but uh, I've caught up a little bit later on. Um, but yeah, well, trying you, to did, get... I mean, you, you absolutely did it. I mean, you you broke through and now you're on the other side now you're teaching it yeah it's a great great privilege to be able to do that and be able to help you know facilitate those experiences and and uh yeah hopefully we'll we'll uh get to help virtual production get on its feet as well and be able to you know, there's a lot, lot of demand for it a lot of people who are wanting to learn it there's lots of opportunity people are constantly telling us they need unreal engine artists and virtual production artists so this seems like there is all the all the studios that we speak to. There's a ton of demand out there, so it's good, yeah, really it's, good. Um, you know, it's, it, we're kind of an, it, it, there's one sort of downside, and I'm trying to figure out what to how this is going to work. But you know, we have these like these huge institutions like ILM and Digital Domain, right? And these institutions are the ones that are making the big movies, right? And there's a real resistance to moving over to a game engine. And, you know, it's like they've invested millions of dollars in a pipeline and also in investing in people who know this Maya nuke pipeline, like the, this, this, there's a whole structure to how it's made. It's like, it's making little sandwiches. You're comping everything really at the end of the day, you're, you're compositing things in, in a very specific way. I mean, the Unreal Engine is like the way you create images, it's, it is CGI, but it's really like so different the way you achieve these shots. I mean, I had to stop, really stop everything and relearn everything. It took 
took me like two years to just get to a place where I could actually achieve professional quality on a deadline now. Um, and, and so, and when I talk to people who are working at ILM or digital domain, they don't want to just not take work for two years and just retrain hundreds of people and go, stop, stop what you're doing. Like, we're not going to take the new transformers movie because we need to all stop and, and now learn unreal engine and un learn this other technique, you know, that's really very, very different. And so it's like, I don't really see these big, huge institutions going ahead and just changing overnight. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of pushback, you know, I mean, I think smaller studios like Ronin film were able to pivot and change everything. But like, I think the independent movement of, you know, is independents are small, you know, they'll, they'll change on a heartbeat, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think it's been at, but we're seeing friends from those big institutions split off and start to create their own, small studios entirely based in Unreal Engine, not using a little bit of the, the old guard, but yeah. really embracing it full, uh, its full potential, dealing with a few of the limitations it's still working through, but really going for it. And I think it's, yeah, it's going to be those, those, uh, it's going to be the rebels. <laughs> They're the ones who right. are going to do it. The rebel alliance. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the rebels. I, I hope oh. that the mainstream doesn't embrace it. And it's going to take some time, but and I understand, I mean, I feel for those guys. I mean, it's like, how can you just disassemble the entire machine, you know, while it's making money, you know? I mean, I understand, but it's like, it's so wait, it's, it's incredibly wasteful. You know, I would spend like a week rendering a shot, you know, in the old method. And now I can just do it in real time. And that week I can make a hundred different variations. It's like, there's a better way, guys. Yeah. Well, I think so. Offline visual effects still has just just the edge visually. Um, as long as you can deal with the the limitations, there's huge advantages to doing it in virtual production. And those that edge is is not going to exist for too much longer. I don't think with the the advent of uh, things like Unreal Five with its massive amounts of geometry and real time yeah. dynamic lighting and stuff stuff huge advances like that happening so yeah, just, frequently you just see where it's, it's just going. in the last like month with unreal 5.1 i mean it's like lumen is way better than any kind of ray tracing i've ever seen in on the other end of you know professional vfx i mean it's just it's, better and it's free and it's in real time like what this is it's just blows my mind yeah, no, it's a, it's an incredible time, and yeah, really exciting to be a part of it, for sure. Um, somebody asked uh, as we wrap here. Somebody asked a question: When are you when are you making the movie of your life? Huh. I you know Steven Spielberg's movie is like it's called The Fableman. It's so good. You should go check it out. It's so great. You know, maybe when I'm eighty, like Spielberg is, you know, maybe I'll do something like that. You know, I I'm I feel like I'm just starting, so. But that's nice. That's very flattering. Good way to be. Uh, and somebody else asked the question: What uh, what is the best indie three D scanner you would recommend? I think that that your iPhone um, yeah. has a lidar scanner on it, and that um, you know I think that that is incredibly uh, efficient and um, 
just scanning with using your iPhone uh, is a is a really really great way of doing photogrammetry. Awesome, yeah. The, even that end of of uh, creation is in everybody's pocket. So yeah, very exciting time. Well, well, it feels like we could do a, another few episodes. So hopefully we'll get to have you back on. Um, well, it's but, been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for including me. Of I love your, I love this podcast. I mean, I I watch it regularly, and it, I think it's so great. It's so important to get the message out and and to really this is kind of creating community um that that we really do need yeah that's a, that's how it's done i remember uh that from the the uh light and magic tv series which i'm still struggling to finish just so of time i mean tears watching it it's so good yeah well there's probably bits of you were probably in some of the shots <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that um kind of rings rings true for this point in time you know it's it's uh, the community is what drove it at that point in time and it still is and it's yeah it's great to be a part of it and we're, we're huge on community here at cg pro so it's a great to have you as a part of the community and uh, to be part of yours and i'm yeah very as i said very grateful for you um taking time out of your evening to share your really fascinating story with us and all of the the wisdom and insights that you've shared with everybody tonight thank you peter thanks i appreciate it you bet you bet well, thank you also to our listeners. There's still some of you listening at this point. And uh, uh, we've had a great session. Thank you guys all for being a part of it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you or, or seeing your questions in again in a couple of weeks on our next episode. Um, thank you all again and have a great rest of your evening. Um, you can follow us again at uh, becomecgpro.com or in our Facebook group. And uh, yeah, thanks for being a part tonight.